Hey guys, and welcome to Fika with Rice, a podcast about life hacks, inspirational life stories, routines, and keys to success. I'm your host, Frederick Van Huyen, and each week I meet some of the most incredible people in the world from self-made millionaires, best-selling authors, experts, and world-class athletes. My goal is to extract their wisdom, mindset, tools, so you can use them in your daily life, but above all, to inspire you. Let's get this Fika started. Welcome to episode 17 by Fika with Rise. This week we meet the design thinking expert Brittany Arthur to learn more about what design thinking is, how you can benefit from it no matter what background and industry you're in. We learn how you turn adversity into your biggest strength, how to adapt to life in Japan as a foreigner, how being different is actually a good thing, how you properly do business in Japan, and how being proactive and believing in the long game pays the highest dividends. A fantastic episode with a lot of lessons. Let's get this Fika started. This is Brittany's story. Let's go. All right, Brittany, welcome to Fika with Rice. I'm really happy to have you on the show finally, especially since I've known you since 2008 and our time in Japan together. And I've seen firsthand, yeah, I've seen firsthand you becoming the person that you have become, which is really, really cool. Freddie, thank, thank you, you so much for having me. No, the, honestly, the pleasure is all mine. I'm so excited to be here and I'm so excited to support really anything that you guys are doing with Fika with Rice or Absolute Internship. You guys are doing an incredible job. Thank you, Brittany. I'm humbled and thank you. Okay, let's get into this. You have had Japan as a crush. I mean, I must say, I know that you're almost getting married, but Japan is your first love. What sparked that interest in like Japan and the Japanese culture when you grew up? Freddie, that's such a great question. And it's such a weird question because, or let me say that's such a weird answer because it's when we hear about people that usually are obsessed with Japan, you and I met because we studied together in Osaka in 2008. We kind of knew there was two groups. There was the group that was kind of super otaku, people that read manga, watched anime. And then there was kind of like everybody else who was did you know who was there for the other experience? I had the same level of obsession as like the otaku people that were as obsessed with manga and anime, but I didn't read manga or watch anime. So I had this very strange like obsession with Japan since like a really long time. I can tell you the exact moment actually that I was like this thing called Japanese. I need to know more about it. I was 11 years old in Australia, which is where I'm originally from, we learn Asian languages as a second language. So you'll less likely find students studying German or Italian or French. You'll see people studying Japanese or Chinese or like my brothers, they even studied Indonesian at high school. So this is quite different, really quite different compared to if we look at like Europe or North America, where the language is Spanish, for example. But Australia, it's like Asian languages. And I remember at my school, my school is Japanese. So the fact, I think I would have always fallen in love with some kind of language. It just happened to be the language that was presented to me was Japanese. And I remember my teacher walked into the room and she took a chalkboard. So I'm showing you just how old we are, right? Using chalkboards and having face-to-face classes. So I've walked into the room and she wrote Yamaguchi Sensei in kanji, top to bottom, right to left. And I thought, I don't know what it's going to take for me in my life, but I'm going to walk into a room, not say anything, and write my name in kanji on a board and sit down to a meeting before I die. That is going to happen. And I think I was 
<laughs> I think I was 11. And so from that stage, that was where kind of the seed was planted. But wanting to be cool and walking into a room and writing in kanji, that's not enough to sustain the language learning process, nor is it enough to sustain a life living abroad. So all that came then after. Then I would do anything possible, like go to a Japanese restaurant just to order in Japanese. And then I would find out that maybe the people from Malaysia and I was like, oh, damn, you know, <laughs> that was kind of my, my journey with Japanese. It really began really, really at a very young age. I just was swept away by just how beautiful it was. And then it developed in my older years into something much more meaningful and more into more or less a tool that I use every day in my life. Okay. I have a lot, lot of follow-up questions. Like, first of all, awesome that your brother speaks Indonesian. How was your childhood? Like, how did your parents send you to a specific, like, private school or? So we're four. We're the, there's four of us. There's me, there's my two brothers, and there's my sister. One of the things that I didn't know until much later in life was the benefit of growing up in a large family is that you have very low helicopter parents because they, as long as you're not dead, as long as no one's bleeding, as long as no one's hurt, you essentially can do what you want because your parents are busy. They've got like stuff going on. And so anytime I said to my mom that I'm going to do something, whether it's experimenting, whether I said I was going to cook something, I'm going to go somewhere. I remember I was like, I think I could have been like 11 or 12. And I told my mom, I'm going to ride my bike across essentially where, where we lived, which is about 25 minutes to my grandmother's house. And my mom had three small kids and she was like, okay, just call me when you get there. And that was kind of like our, our house. As long as you're like physically safe, essentially you can do what you want, which was an incredible platform actually for me to experiment. Cause I never grew up in a household where my parents were telling me, oh no, don't do that. That's dangerous. I never had my, for example, the first time I went abroad on my own when I was 17, I said, I'm, you know, I'm going to go and study in Japan. My parents were like, okay, calls when you get there. <laughs> and I can't imagine being like an only child and having like these parents, like worried, worried about your safety all the time. Like I can't imagine who I would have been if I literally had my, my mom and my dad, like constantly worried, worried about me. I can't imagine. So that was kind of how we grew up. It was all very, there was always something going on. There, were, there was always, you know, you can imagine two girls, two boys, all four very different personalities. My mom was very set that we all had like our own thoughts, our own personalities, and maybe to the detriment, we've all grown up actually very strong with very strong personalities. It's like me times four, but like different. Like for example, the next one, my brother, he's head to toe in tattoos, whereas like I couldn't think of anything worse. The next one down, he's a civil engineer. He's kind of more like the, like the bro guy, like play sports. And then there's my sister, who's like the designer. Like we're all very different. Okay. So how did support and encouragement look like for you to go and study abroad? I mean, at such a young age. I guess there's kind of two elements. Like the first element is kind of, do you get the take of approval from your family? which is, do they, are they kind of on board with the idea or not? And you can imagine when I came after that Japanese class where Yamaguchi Sensei walked in, wrote her name, Yamaguchi Sensei. I came home, I was like, mom, I'm doing this. This is the thing from my life. I'm going to walk into a room and like write Japanese one day. And that started when I was 11. So I was essentially drip feeding my mom this Japan story for a very long time. 
I think what can freak parents out and what I would encourage some of the listeners to do is that when you have these big dreams that you want to kind of spring on someone, if they've never heard about it before and it's kind of out of left field, that's kind of a little bit where you get the pushback, you know, but I have been saying every single day for probably eight years for my mom or, you know, six years for my mom, this Japan thing is happening for me. I'm doing it, you know? And so it wasn't a surprise to her when I said, you know, I'm going to Japan. I want to go to Japan. So she was always on board with the idea because it, I, you know, groomed it over time. I didn't just wake up one day. I can imagine like if you, ne- if I never had mentioned anything about Japan, I said, mom, I'm going to Japan. I think she'd be like, what? Why? You know, but because it was not new, she was v- very on board from the beginning. The second thing is when you're going abroad and as you know, um, with you guys at Absolute Internship, and I'm sure some of the uh, Fik with Rice listeners also know, is that then there's the other element, which is how do I logistically make this happen? Which is everything from what, what about uh, finances? You know, what, do I stay with a host family? What about my own accommodation? And am I going to school? And that whole thing was a different story. That was when at the time, if you had had the business, I would have called you, Freddie, but um, you didn't have the business at the time when I was going, <laughs> which was in I was still in high school back then. <laughs> you, were still, you were still in high school. So as I was still in high school, so I reached out to an organization who kind of had scholarships and did the whole thing, like everything from like host families organized, all the logistics stuff that I knew that uh, was a little bit difficult to manage on my own. So Brittany, like since the day I met you, you've always been this really independent person. Have you always been that independent and, and where did that come from, you think? That's so interesting. I think independence, I would say that sometimes I'm fe- I feel uh, the opposite because I feel so much of my life is dependent upon the support and the commitment and the engagement of others, whether it was when I was younger you know, and it was my, it was my family who were like my, my stakeholders that I had to manage, you know, or whether it's like now, whether it's my clients, I don't have a business without my clients. And so if it's from, from that end, I kind of feel like as much as I am this independent person, I do feel that that's only possible because I have this incredible support base. Uh, and whether it's now in my own family or whether it's uh, my clients, but when it comes to why the independence thing? I think one thing that stands out is I've never been afraid to take risks for something that I think could be something cool to do. And what that means is I've always had like an idea, whether it was studying Japanese, whether it was going to Japan, whether it was having my own business now, or when I went to Germany, what lived in Germany, where, whatever it was, I always thought I can work it out. Somehow I'll be able to work it out. And I think being the, you know, being, whether it's being the oldest of four children or whatever it is, I've, I've never been the person that has been able to draw the perfect process, right? Even for example, now in my work, I'm not the person that you come to, to refine your idea. I'm the person that you come to when you want to ideate your new idea. And for me, I guess independence has come from that idea of just beginning something and then working it as you go along can't tell you how many people that you and I know that have said, I want to live in New York. I want to start my own business or I want to start a podcast. Could be something super simple as starting a podcast. I want to start a podcast. And that was five years ago. And yeah. there's been nothing happen, happening since. So I think independence comes from taking steps forward every day. You don't wake up one day and you go, I'm independent. It's every single day 
that you take steps that maybe others wouldn't. And one thing that you do end up seeing is that through you taking chances, you become not a role model, but you become a model of what's possible. And then that becomes actually inspiring to other people. And then they actually can come and then join your team. So there's this funny balance between independence and kind of like being alone and these kind of lone wolf, which you do have when you're a business owner. Uh, Because at the end of the day, when you're paying salaries, you know, you can't be crying on your employee's shoulder if you're not able to pay their salaries. That's your problem. You got to work it out, right? But at the same time, when you do take risks and it does go well, people do get excited and do want to come and support you on your journey. Yeah. You think that growing up being like one of the older siblings in your family sort of carved you to become an independent person? I could not imagine being the youngest child. I could not imagine being the youngest child. Maybe an only child, but not the youngest child. Sometimes I look like younger child. Because for me, being the oldest child is also like being like running a company. Like you, (laughs) at the end of the day, like the buck stops with you. You got to like make things happen. And sometimes when I look at like, whether it's, even when it's like people that I meet now in my life and they're like, oh, I'm the youngest. Even if they're like 45 years old, I'm like, I can tell. (laughs) I can tell. So I think being the oldest certainly, I think has been integral to me being, being the person I am. Okay, that's really interesting. So I had a conversation with someone, it was two years ago, and he grew up being the second oldest out of four. Mm -hmm. And so this guy is super smart, really, Mm -hmm. really smart. And apparently he had read a book. And the theory in the book was people that had smarter, older siblings grew Uh up even smarter. So he Uh says, hey, watch out for my youngest brother. He's going to be like a rock star because he's getting all the knowledge I'm, that I know, all my sister's knowledge and the third sister. What oh, do you think absolutely. of that theory? Thousand percent. Absolutely thousand percent. So my, the, the number two, three, and four, exponentially clever, exponentially intelligent, all three of them. I mean, the oldest of like getting stuff done, organizing things, getting people moving, okay. getting people excited, getting people on the same page. This is something, for example, that like a sec, the second, the third, the fourth, this is something for me that they like operate in their own, their own like uh, bubbles. For me, the first, the first builds community, right? Because the first community that you built was your family, right? It's the siblings. And then, and then after that, then you go and build community, whether it's, you know, you're, the, you're like the podcast community, whether it's your clients, whatever it is. So in terms of intelligence, I certainly think that without, without question, two, three, and four are streets ahead of me. But in terms of getting... Getting people excited, getting people behind a cause, I still think that's uh, where being the oldest might give you a step forward. <laughs> that's a really, yeah, it's a really good strength. It's a very good strength. Okay, so we had, I don't know if you knew, but we had our first North American Conmary consultant called Patty Morrissey on the show a few weeks ago. She was really cool and she recommended that I asked all the guests what the first mm-hmm. internship was. Uh, as I'm oh. the co-founder of Absolute Internship. So I wanted to ask you, what was your first internship like? Freddie, so my first internship was at the Australian Trade Commission in Osaka during our summer break in 2008 when we were studying in Osaka, right? Okay. Because, one, I didn't have enough money to go home. Everyone went home for the season because I was also Australian. 
the Australian academic year is like January to December and everywhere else on the planet, apart from Japan, Japan is then like uh, April, April, April through, right? And then the like Northern hemisphere, you guys begin in like September, October. So I had this like break where all the other exchange students went home. I was in Japan and I was like, I have to do something with my time. So I was like, I'm I'm passionate about bilateral relations. I'm going to call the Australian Trade Commission, right? I called them. I said, my name is, or I think I read them an email. I don't remember. I said, my name is Brittany and I'm a student at Kansai Gaidai and I want to do an internship at the Australian Trade Commission during the summer. Thank you. Right? And they wrote back, no, no, we don't have an internship. Like, thanks, but no thanks. And I was like, well, that didn't go as I expected. (laughs) You know, like I'm thinking, I'm offering you like free work. Like, why don't you want to take it? And I talked to my host mother and I said, I asked them and they said no. And she said, Brittany, what's the most important thing in Japan? I was like, well, I don't know. She's like, relationships. You have no relationship with this, with this organization. You know nothing. They know nothing about you. And apart from the name, tell me what you know about them. And I'm like, good question. Actually, nothing. (laughs) She's like, it just sounded like a good idea to you. Do some more research, build some more like relationships. So they had like a few events when like I, where I, I essentially just went and just met a few people and introduced myself. Anyway, months later, because I knew that I had to organize this internship ahead of time. And a few months later, I get a call from the senior trade commissioner, Michael Clifton. I still remember, I still remember being on the, the corner where I was with the phones. Do you remember our phones, our flip phones that we used to have, the ka-ching phones? I so the them. flip phone, I, mine was pink from SoftBank. I remember it so well. Mine was gold. <laughs> was it? Was yeah. it? So, so, I call, so I picked up the phone and I said, hello. And he said, this is, Michael, this is Michael Clifton from the Australian Trade Commission. And I couldn't hear anything. Cars were going past. And I was like, hi, God. And I was like, and he said, uh, if you're still interested in an internship, we actually have this huge, like essentially stack of paper. This was 2008 when Japan was beginning their digitalization journey. And he said, we have like literally a room full of paper that we need digitalized. If that sounds like something that you want to do, come on in. And I literally was there the next day. And he said, and then they said, okay, we won't pay you. We actually won't set any hours for you. Come when you want, go when you want. And I came at eight o'clock every single morning and I left at six o'clock every single night. So like, I, I was there the entire day. My thinking was, the quicker I get through this paper, because it's, it's finite, right? There's only so much paper that I have to digitalize. If I get through this paper, there won't be any other jobs left. So I'll just go to meetings and I'll be able to like see what people are doing, which is exactly what happened. I got through the paper, which also like was so crazy. And I probably should say this like live on the internet, but there were so many crazy pieces of paper there. There was stuff like, Australians who had been arrested in Japan and why? And I'm like reading them and I'm like, oh my God, just <laughs> the kind of things that can happen. And then after that, we got through all the paper and then there was nothing left to do. And then some of the trade commissioners were like, well, I'm going to meet with a, like a wine export company if you want to join. And I was like, I absolutely do want to join. And uh, so that was my very first internship. It didn't exist. And then afterwards, people asked me, how did you get the internship? I'm like, they don't exist in so many places in the world. Internship structures don't exist. Sometimes you have to make it. So that was my very first internship. What did it teach you, you would say? Firstly, I don't want to work in government because that's, I was super... That's a good pa- lesson. I was super passionate about people um, and the whole you know, bilateral 
Japan, Australia thing. And I just saw sometimes at, at the government level, maybe it's changed. This was like 15 years ago, that things just move very, very slowly. I just saw if you can go direct to consumer, if you can go direct to the user, you can sometimes move a little quicker. The first thing I didn't want to work in government. Second thing is that the lives that we're building, you know, being Australian, being in Japan, or being, being Swedish, or being interested in all these other things, our new world doesn't have perfect jobs for us. And it's not up to people to give us the perfect job. It's not up to someone to say, okay, you speak German, Japanese, and English. Here's the perfect job for you. Go ahead and do it. It's going to be up to me to cultivate this job. The other thing is absolutely taught me just the importance of relationships. And since that time, not only am I friends with you since that time, but I'm also still friends with some of those uh, trade commissioners who are now 15 years more senior in their career. And I've just been able to see them grow as well. So, so many lessons also taught me when somebody asks nothing of you, like they did of me, they didn't ask me to come at eight o'clock. They didn't ask me to stay all day. They didn't ask me not to take a lunch break. You're the one who has to decide. You have to decide how deep am I going in on this? I could have gone one hour a day and still got a letter saying, yes, she worked here, right? But it's up to me how deep that I wanted to go with it. And also just like, you sometimes have just got to hang on in. And sometimes when people get a no and you have a negative response, like, well, if you don't want free work, well, that's your problem, right? Sometimes like people get this strange response. If I had said that, I wouldn't have got a call four months later when the right opportunity had come up. And sometimes it's so important to be in front of people at the top of people's minds so that when something does come up, they can connect you. If I hadn't had stayed in contact after originally reaching out to the Australian Trade Commission by going to events and kind of just staying in contact a little bit by email, if I hadn't had stayed in top of mind, when this horrible job of digitalizing like literally a room full of paper, when that came up, they wouldn't have thought of me. Not because they're bad people, they forget. Tell me, like people forget their mom's birthday. So I'm not, I don't feel bad that they forget me, you know? So don't take it too personally. So, so many lessons. And also it just, if anything, just added more fuel to the fire. I was like, maybe the government path isn't for me, but this whole like bringing two people together from different sides of the planet to do business, this stuff I can get into. Brittany, what, uh, besides your, um, your host mother in Japan, who taught you or what made you want to come in every day at eight? Like, where did that discipline come from? I could tell you that there, I had nothing else to do, right? Because it was, it was holidays. I could, I could say that, but it wasn't that. It was, I wanted to spend every second possible to, I wanted to be close to where I was in my dream. So if you think about it, my dream was to be essentially to be like a senior trade commissioner, to be that person that represents Australia. I didn't know that that wasn't supposed to be in like the, like the government platform, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. I, it's still true today. It's just different. Now I do it through Design Thinking Japan and I do it in different ways with my own business. But when I knew I wasn't living the dream like perfectly, I wasn't living the dream yet. I thought the next best thing you to do is get close to it. So if I'm not a senior trade commissioner, at least go to the office, stay in the office and at least be there. So for me, certainly the, the discipline of, of being there at eight o'clock and staying all day was because I thought this is, this is the path for me to get close to what I wanted to be. And I'm sure that many of the Fika with Rice 
listeners might have something in mind that they, that isn't true right now, that they want to be something, they want to be somewhere, they want to go somewhere with it's, you know, also with your students at Absolute Internship, it's the same thing. Sometimes you don't come from a family where people have three passports and, you know, you, they can pay for your education and go abroad. Sometimes that's not always possible. So find an environment or find people where that's true. And when you see that that's true, and when you see that this is possible, that it lives, it breathes, it's in front of you, then that gives you, then you hear stories. And then you hear that they didn't go to, you know, Australia, Japan, trade commissioners, high school, and then went to Japan, Australia, trade commissioner university. It didn't exist. They had to build their own path. When you start moving from like this kind of job titles, when you start saying who's behind the job title, if you listen to their stories, you can listen to how they got there, right? And this is true of also your podcast. You've shared so many stories about so many different people that have been able to achieve things that if you just wrote down, this is what these people do, it gives no context to how they got there. And you listen to these stories and then you think about what could be true for me? What could I do? What could I learn from this person? And kind of move forward in, in that way. It's, you require, it requires so much discipline, Brittany. When you grew up, did you do any sports or anything on the side of school that taught you the art of discipline? My parents were always incredibly disciplined, I would say. So my, okay. in, our fa- in our family, discipline was, or showing up to work was never negotiable, ever. Going to school. So I remember, did you have kids in your class that were like, oh, I had like a headache today. I didn't go to school. Yes, you have, so many. Yeah, so my father didn't finish the 10th grade. His parents pulled him out of school and sent him mm-hmm. to work. And so he was adamant on education. So unless we had a severed arm and we we're bleeding like quite heavily, <laughs> like we were going to school. Like there was just no, there was just no option. And then my mom actually also had this very good trick that I didn't realize until much later that was absolutely, she played us so hard. She was like, look, this is what we're going to do. Go to school, see how you feel. And if you don't feel well by lunchtime, call me and I'll come and get you. And when you're at school, you're fine. You just kind of get over it, right? You, you kind of move on. You move on, You move on from it. Perfect play by my mom. Absolutely perfect play because we obviously never called her at lunchtime, right? So I would say that the discipline came from, I'm not in an environment where I know people who are doing multi-million dollar business deals with Japan and Australia. I don't know these people. So if I don't get up and see what they do and understand what they do, I'm not going to get there. So that was really one of those things. And the sec- so that was kind of like more later in life. But I would just say early in life, I never had a day of school. Never, never, never. Um, simply because it was non-negotiable. My parents, as I said, my father never finished school. We, you know, growing up with four kids and, you know, my parents, neither of them actually finishing high school, you know, we, we had a, you know, a different possibilities financially than other families. So for us, it, there was no option of like, for my parents were like, okay, if I don't go to work, that means, I, or if you don't go to school, I have to stay at home and look after you. And that's not an option. We've got to make sure that, you know, we, we bring food on the table every week. So my parents were going to work regardless. So then there was no one home. So that meant we were going to school. And then discipline more than anything is not necessarily a feeling. You don't wake up feeling disciplined. Discipline is an, is an action. And sometimes if you don't, are not naturally disciplined, 
all you just need is a clock. All you need is is an alarm. Follow the alarm and that's it. And then after a period of time, and for each person, it's different. Some people, you only need 21 days to build a habit. For other people, you might need two years, you know, to wake up early. That's totally fine. Just be really honest with who you are and make sure that you build these systems that help you succeed, but make sure that they're for you because each person is very different in what they need. I love that story. Thank you for sharing, Brittany. And that makes me think back of the way I grew up and, you know, how discipline was instilled in me. Are you first generation in Sweden or were your parents also born in Sweden? No, I'm, I'm first generation. Yeah. So there's two things that ha- haven't come up. So it's either your first generation immigrant or you come up from, or you come up or your parents didn't go to school or you come from like not exactly. a whole lot of money. And that's the push. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that was one thing. And then the other was like, well, they, they just went to work every single day early, came <laughs> back home late, cooking, and they were out walking after dinner and, you know, swimming a few times per week. And yeah, it was like never complaining, you know, I guess. Yeah, I, I really resonate a lot with what you were sharing, Brittany. Okay, you moved to Japan relatively young. What did living in Japan as a blonde woman teach you? A few things. One, if you're going to get in trouble, you have to do it much more secretly. So I went to school in a place called Kagoshima, which was the most southern place of the most southern island. And it was 2005, and this city got their first Starbucks. And the school that I went to was a private school, and you're absolutely not allowed to go anywhere outside of school in your school uniform. and some, I, and I went to Starbucks because I actually was friends with like kids from the public school <laughs> because they were like doing things and I went out and like my private school friends, they had to study, right? And I was there and I didn't really have like a structured homework. I knew I needed to learn the language. So I was like, I need to learn the language somehow. So I became friends with the public school girls and they were like, let's go to Starbucks. I went to Starbucks. Next day, boom, principal calls me in. She said, where were you yesterday? Oh no, I just, I just went home. She said, we got a call that there was a blonde girl in our school uniform in Starbucks. As far as I know, you're it. There's no one else. <laughs> Damn. I said, no, yes, um, actually, well, maybe that could be true. Yeah, no, so that's, um, I've had things like that. The other thing is when it comes to being blonde in Japan, it was actually a very funny thing compared to me being eight years when I was blonde in Germany. So when I was blonde in Japan, people don't expect much of you. They always think you're a foreigner. I've had, for example, now we run uh, innovation workshops. Pre-corona, I would have people walk into the room, see my face, walk out and think I'm in the wrong room. Go to reception, ask, where's the workshop for design thinking and new business development? They're like, no, over there with her. And they're like, you're kidding, right? So I've always, when you are looking so different to, I would say that the people that you serve, it can be a barrier in many ways. The second thing it can do, however, is that when you use it to your advantage, and what I mean by that is when I would open our workshops, whether it was, you know, our innovation workshops, and I would say, you know, today I want, you know, it's not about being perfect. The fact that they hear my accent, right? Because we all have accents. The fact that they hear my accents means, ah, she's not perfect either. So in a way, simply you being you gives people their permission to also allow themselves to be them. And this is even more important somewhere like Japan, where you know things are very rigid. I would have to say in terms of, I've never really had me being like a, like a foreign 
women really play against me in Japan. So I would say in terms of being a foreign woman in Japan, I never have had really those, those discriminatory stories that you do hear about. But I would say in Japan, your real, the real kind of barrier isn't necessarily being a woman or, or being, being foreign. Sometimes it's being young because Japan, in Japanese will look at you and if you're under 40, they're like, do you really know what you're talking about? So yeah, so that's what, that's what I would say. The funny thing actually is when it comes to being a woman in Japan, it's quite different, for example, to being a woman in Germany. So if you're a woman in Germany, which is where I lived for eight years, and you come to, you come to work with you know, makeup and nails, sometimes that's considered less professional. Whereas in Japan, if you don't have your nails done nicely, they will look at you almost as like being unprofessional. And I have like clients and people honestly say, when I've had my nails done, say things like, oh, gee, they're really nice nails. Ah, oh, thank you. And this is not sexual harassment. This is just in Japan that if you're a woman, lean into being a woman. You don't have to kind of be in Germany where it's like you have to kind of be like this non-male, non-female kind of person. So being a woman in Japan and being a foreign woman in Japan is really interesting as long as you know how to, how to manage it and how to drive in kind of a little bit complex situations. What would you say is the biggest misconception about living in Japan? That it's super high tech, which okay. is an absolute, there's many. So Japan is either super crazy high tech, like you have robot dogs as pets, or you cannot pay with a card in a restaurant because they only accept cash. So one of the biggest, yeah. So I would say that Japan being super high tech is simply just not the case. Some of Japan is super high tech, but for however high tech that part of Japan is, is how low tech the other side is. It's incredible. That is interesting because a lot of people they're thinking, okay, but Japan is already on 6G and like they have all these like AI phones. and This is true in some cases, but then, for example, ATMs close at 10 p.m. Why would an ATM oh, wow. close? Why would Why they close? That? Nobody knows. No, actually, there, there is actually a reason. It's like, Apparently, the legacy, the fi- there's a, apparently a lot of legacy systems in the financial systems in Japan, and they actually have to re, like reboot or something like overnight. Like, it's yeah, it's oh, it's crazy. Right. So and for example, also Japan has like if you want to pay like if you're if you're at the Shinkansen, you want to pay for your train ticket. There's two there's two blocks. One is Shinkansen for Japanese credit cards, and the second one is for foreign credit cards. Why are there two machines like for they Japanese still credit have cards? That? And for- Yes, 2021 is still there, Freddie. This well, didn't change. That's great. You know, when I was there in Japan, like we could only withdraw money from post offices because th- those were the only ones that could accept foreign cards, you know? Yeah, so now 7-Eleven and Lawson like, are a little bit better, but not every single ATM will, will accept your foreign credit card. So if you're traveling in Japan, make sure you have cash with you. We tell all our students that, that go to Japan, but okay. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good, a good advice. Okay, Japan is also one of the few countries in the world that have managed to keep their culture and customs, mm. right? From your perspective, how can a foreigner successfully blend into the Japanese culture? I love this, Freddie. And the answer is you don't. What, okay. you do as a, what you do as a foreigner in Japan to succeed is that I see two kinds of people go to Japan. One is people who are completely foreign looking 
and try to be Japanese. It's even more difficult, actually, if you're from an Asian background and you try to be overly Japanese because they'll completely shut you out. It's very difficult. The other is then you kind of see these Americans that have like lived and not just only Americans, but you see people that have lived in Japan like 30 years and don't speak a word of Japanese. And I'm like, you're kidding. And sometimes they, they, and they end up being sometimes more accepted into the community than the others. What I found is that the really that the balance is, is really, or the, the gold is really something in the middle, which is when you are engaging in meetings, when you're working with your Japanese business partners, when you're working with your stakeholders, whatever that may be, make sure that you still are you in the sense they, they've hired you for a reason or they're working with you for a reason. And when you drop the reason, which is that you bring this added value because you're from somewhere else, then you actually lose the reason why you or how you can really contribute value in the first place. So if I, for example, in my business, what I like to think about it is I don't bring design thinking or innovation to Japan. What I do is bring the Japanese people to design thinking and innovation. And the way that I do that, instead of walking in and saying, okay, everyone, we're going to be talking about design thinking, which is a katakana word, design thinking. We're going to be talking about innovation, innovation, right? Rather than using these words that people don't really understand, it's like trying to, you know, explain sushi with other Japanese words. Oh, well, Sushi is like, you know, you take the, take the sashimi. And if you don't know what sushi or sashimi is, like, it's all just mumbo jumbo. You know what they're talking about. So this is why the Business Karaoke podcast exists, because rather than saying, okay, everyone, I want you to have this innovation mindset. And innovation mindset means being open. And innovation mindset means trying new things. What I do is, is I say, okay, everyone, for the next two hours, imagine we're in a karaoke box. And Japanese people, they know how to be in a karaoke box. Japanese people know how to be in a karaoke box. They know that it means if I can sing, I'll sing. It means I have to cheer on. It means if I'm the CEO and the intern is the best singer, then I'll clap along. You know, so this, this whole thing means, or it, 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 they, they know how to be innovative. Just don't call it innovation, call it karaoke, right? And so that's kind of the thing. So when you're a foreigner, instead of trying to take things as you know, as you know them, as you learned them, Understand the essence of what you're trying to share, understand the essence of what you're trying to teach, and then teach it in a way that is meaningful to the people that you're talking to. Yeah, I would love to get into more of that. But I'm just going to go back to what you said before about being different, Brittany, about mm-hmm. being the, the woman in, or the, in Japan or the blonde mm-hmm. girl, like in this, this little town. And I was thinking while you were talking now, and I'm like, you know, I resonate a lot with that because growing up in Sweden, I mean, I think in our school, we're like three Asians. There was one kid from China and the third one was adopted and that was me. So I've always been like, okay, I need to find ways to like use it as an advantage instead of like, rather than a disadvantage. You know, and I think that's something that you have done really successfully well, you know, in Japan, but also in Germany, you know, like actually embracing, hey, I'm this Australian blonde girl that speaks speaks Japanese and I'm okay with that, you know, and this is me, you know, and, you know, in my case, like, yes, I am Swedish and, you know, people are calling me the yellow pages when I grew up because, well, I always love to talk to people. I knew everyone I had all their phone numbers, you know, so (laughs) I always love the network. So. 
anyway, I've, I embraced it, you know, instead of like shy away from that type of thing. But I think a lot of people, especially out there, you know, today, people are shy, you know, people are uncomfortable with this. People are not everyone is comfortable in their own skin, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. same here now, you're talking about the business karaoke, you know, like this is not only like a Swedish or an Australian thing, this is like it goes across all countries, you know, like a lot of Japanese people are not comfortable either, you know. So I, it's really cool what you've been doing at uh, Design Thinking Japan. And I wanted to ask you about that because when was the first time you heard about the word design thinking? Well, Freddie, that's a, that's a great question. I actually learned about design thinking when I had my first graduate position. So when you have a grad position in Japan, sometimes you have crazy hours and you have to work till 10 p.m. And then, some, then there's entire days where your boss has nothing for you to do. So you have to like look busy. And I always use those days where my boss didn't have anything to do for us. I always use that for learning. So it'll be reading. And one of the things that kind of uh, struck me the most was how we can essentially make our, or how we can get two very, very different groups of people. So at the time I was working for a German company, and but I was working on the Japanese side. So you can imagine me being this like blonde Australian girl who doesn't speak German and always the Germans would come and then, you know, even my boss would look at me and say, well, recently the, the German visitors are here. Can you look after them? They don't speak English or Japanese. And I said, well, I don't speak German. And my boss, my Japanese boss looked at me like, but you're like foreign though. So you'd do a better job with them than I would. And so I always just thought, you know, you're, you're laughing at, you know, you being in Sweden and me being in Japan and just trying to deal with not necessarily racist, but can you imagine like your Japanese boss looking at you and being like, and I'm telling him, I don't speak German. Like, you know, German's another language, not English. I don't speak it, right? And he's like, yeah, but you're, you're Japanese. You're not, you know, you're both foreign though. You can work it out, right? And I thought that was so funny. And so I first learned about it when I was, when I was reading, essentially just better. I, I remember I was reading uh, Fast Company. I was like obsessed with reading Fast Company in 2011. It was like my go-to website. And I would be reading how to essentially do business better, what was changing. Because I recognized that there was a lot going on abroad, but locally in Japan, what we were actually doing, there seemed to be a little bit of a gap. And I started learning about this methodology called design thinking that would essentially act as like a GPS in the innovation process. And I was working with essentially in the the cross-border team where we would be responsible for developing new, new business. And so we would have, you know, the German headquarters, we were in Japan. The idea was to leverage both of these cultures to then come up with new business, new products, and you can imagine like the Japanese-German partnership is incredibly strong because they're both very, both cultures are very committed to, to quality. They're very committed to doing things well, committed long-term. So it's a really great starting point, but we weren't always getting to the places that we wanted to get to. And I thought, why is this? Think about innovation as a journey. If you don't have a map, then of course you're going to get lost. And when I started learning about design thinking being, being an actual process, a step-by-step process of divergence and convergence, where you move from understanding the problem, first understanding the problem before solutioning, this really changed the way that I was thinking. Because if you're not move, if you're not having the same conversation, if I'm speaking about understanding the problem and you're already speaking about the solutions or you're in the solutions and I'm thinking about testing, for example, then we don't move forward. And what we need in innovation, particularly in cross-border innovation, we need speed. We have to make sure that things move fast. And having the same conversation 
especially when we're dealing with Japanese, English, and German, all these other languages, if we don't have the same common terms for things. So if I say, okay, Freddie, let's for the next 30 minutes, let's come up with ideas. If when I say the word idea, you already think idea means an idea that's realistic enough that we could implement it, we're already having two different conversations. So using design thinking as a tool to make sure that we're managing culture, because you know you would have German culture is very strong, Japanese culture is very strong. And then also to manage the different kinds of personalities, Germans are very outspoken, Japanese are less so. So managing all these different elements, we had to move forward. We still had to find a way to move forward. We still had to find a way to build business. And design thinking ended up being a really great tool. It took the guesswork out of innovation. And essentially when I, after seeing it or using it myself the first couple of times, seeing the way that we could elevate different people's voices, seeing the way that we could not only think big and be really creative, but also come back and really go deep into the questions and to the risks that people are worried about. What does this mean, especially when it comes to, for example, in Germany, what does this mean for us legally? What does this mean for us in terms of whatever insurance, whatever it might be? When I saw that really come to life, that we could not only be creative, but we could also get really, really deep into the details of the business, I thought this is really something really special that I want to know more about. Okay. So, I mean, I know what it is right now because you've explained it to me in the past, right? But let's say Mm -hmm. I'm 12 years old. I don't know nothing about this. What is design thinking and how could like the average Sarah or the average Joe in Australia, Mm -hmm. like get like a big takeaway? How can they benefit from design thinking or their company? Absolutely. So there's, I think there's, probably three, there's three core elements. The first element is that we begin with people, that we always have a user in mind. The second thing is, is that we make sure uh, that we, that we work in diverse teams. And the third thing is, is that we work, that we build prototypes to learn. So we have those three things. So let's talk about how we can live that in our own real lives, right? So imagine if we think about, if we take, let's take someone, for example, like a persona from your absolute internship business. Let's take, for example, someone like that. And they say, you know what? I don't know what I want to do. I don't know in the future. I don't know what I want to do career-wise. I know what I don't want to do, but I don't really know what I do want to do. So the first things first is that you begin with you. So rather than you know reading books on how other people have done things or going and talking to other people, what you want to do is you want to talk to you. You want to take you as the user because you're the one who we're going to be designing for. So you have you as the user. The second thing that we do is that we want to make sure that we get that we gather data about the problem. So for example, what I would do is I would get really specific that I would say, what's things that I love, for example, when am I most happy? And I would get so specific that it could almost be a photo. Where are you when you're happy? Are you with two people? Are you with 10 people? Are you with 20 people? Are you in front of a computer? Are you creating something new? Are you building on the ideas of others? What is it that makes you really excited? And use that kind of data, use that data or that emotion as data to then inform your next decisions, right? So then when we've kind of, uh, if we're just doing this on our own, we don't have to think too much about the diversity part. Ideally, when we're building in our businesses, that if we're building you know, a new product, rather than you know, having the, the tech team build it and then give it to the marketing team, what we would do is we would have half the tech team and half the marketing team in the same team to build, to build this idea. Because what we want to do is we want to leverage the strengths of both people. 
And that's kind of how we would build in the diversity. The third thing that we want to do is we always want to move to prototyping, which means we want to build something so that we can learn from it. So if I was someone, you know, I was this person, I didn't know what I was doing in life and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I would build, maybe it would be a storyboard. What does it look like? I would take what the, the information that I learned from the problem statement or from the problem space. And then I would use that to create, imagine you were designing a magazine cover for your life in five years time. What would they look like? What would people say about you? And then when you move, when you use emotion as data to inform decisions, and then you use those decisions to then go and build a solution, you really start, you get unstuck. People, when they get stuck in their head about, I don't know what I want to do and what should I do with my life and my career, they get stuck. And these, taking these steps, step-by-step step, really helps you get unstuck. So that's one thing I would really encourage you to do. Another really important thing about when it comes to design thinking is that we, that we first understand the problem before we solve for the solution. A really great example is we were recently working with a Japanese company who wanted to become more innovative. And they saw in Silicon Valley, innovative companies have free breakfast and they have table tennis tables. So let's go buy table tennis tables. And then they bought table tennis tables and nothing changed. And they're like, gee, I wonder what happened. When we came in and we started to dig a little bit deeper and say, okay, what's the real issue? We, we interviewed their people. We didn't do anything crazy. We didn't use big data or AI. We simply interviewed 12 people and we said, tell us a little bit about, you know, the innovation in the company and sharing ideas. And it turned out that one of the real obstacles to innovation in the company was that people, but that this company was over 400 years old and people had such respect for the company that they were working for. They didn't want to be the generation who bankrupts a 400 year old company. So they didn't want to take risks. So rather than the senior management buying table tennis tables, what we ended up doing was that they had these brown bag sessions where they would have lunch with senior management and senior management would have these like one-on-ones with younger staff and say, and just share a little bit about their journey at the company. And they would learn, we don't always have to do everything perfect because the person who's, you know, kept this company afloat for the last generation, they didn't do everything perfect and they've learned their lessons. So design thinking is also a, certainly, it's a really great way, especially for for individuals or for small businesses that are really tight on resources, it's really a great thing because it helps you first, it reminds you to solve for the problem rather than just creating a solution and then you don't know if it's going to work. We have to be really thoughtful when it comes to our resources. That's why we, want, we really want to make sure that we solve or we understand the problem before we start thinking about the solution. I love that. What's the biggest misconception about design thinking when you're working with, with customers? Oh my gosh, that it's fun. The people think, oh, design thinking is just super fun and it's just like post-its. Design thinking, especially if you're the facilitator like I am, you're holding space for uncertainty. You're holding space for 10 years of people's worries because people come to you not with a new problem. They come to you with old problems. They say to you, you know, this business hasn't been working for 10 years. You know, so I'm not solving for the business now. I'm solving also for like what's happened in the last 10 years. So the biggest misconception about design thing is that it's pure fun. It's not always pure fun. Sometimes it's really tough. Sometimes you have really difficult conversations. Sometimes you're sitting that you have marketing, you have finance, you have tech, and you have to make a decision. What are we going to roll out first? Are we going to invest in new features or are we going to invest in marketing? What's going to make the difference? And so design thinking as much as it is 
can be fun. It's one of those, it's one of those, it's fun after you've done something really hard. It's not one, it's not fun for fun itself. It's that kind of fun, you know, after a really tough workout or after you've gone for a hike or after you've swum really far and you go, that was really fun. It's that kind of fun. That sounds really nice. Okay, let's move on. You mentioned the, uh, your podcast, Brittany, which is amazing, by the way. Business Karaoke. It's really cool. I listened to a few episodes already. A lot of lessons, a lot of big takeaways. What has creating a podcast taught you? What has creating a podcast taught me? That there's a community for everything. So when it comes to content, especially content or around Japan, it's usually like travel bloggers or like food bloggers or whatever. And I love eating really great food. I love going away for the weekend, but I'm not a travel blogger. I couldn't think of anything worse than like traveling all the time. I like having a two-day holiday and then boom, back to work. I, that's what I like, you know? So for me, starting a podcast is, has just shown me that I thought I want to know more. For example, like when you and I were studying together in, in 2008, there was no one that was a dynamic international woman leading Japanese companies in innovation, right? There was, I didn't know anyone who, could, who I could look to. Creating a podcast around that has been, really, uh, has been really exciting because it's actually bought out people from you know, the, the internet who are interested in the same thing that I am. So creating a podcast has just been such a wonderful thing for me in terms of identifying a community. It's like you put a flag in the ground and you say, hey, if you're interested in business and innovation in Japan, but you're also this global person, whether you're Japanese or global, because the Business Karaoke's podcast is bilingual, you know, because there's just as many Japanese people who, who have been abroad for many years and want to bring global best practice to Japan, as much as there's global people that want to bring, you know, or want to bring Japanese practices abroad. So there's really, there's really those two kind of profiles. It's like putting a flag in the ground and saying, hey guys, if you're interested in this, come over and, and join us. And that's just been such, uh, such a wonderful thing. And it's, you know, for you and I, we're people, people before anything else. And uh, creating this community and finding people that are really interested in the same thing you are has really just been a blessing. I'm glad to hear that. I personally love uh, listening to podcasts and also like hosting my own podcast. I just, I just love, you know, getting to know people and share the lessons and life lessons and wisdom that, you know, our guests have with the world. So I definitely resonate with you. But Brittany, you, um, you've been giving a lot of speeches as well in front of hundreds of people. I mean, you're often the unique one, like we, we spoke about due to the way you look. What are some of the techniques that you have to turn your uniqueness into your hidden strength? And how do you use that? And how do you deal with pressure in these type of situations? That's a great question. I think first things first, when it comes to you telling a story, whether you're telling a story to just someone you're having lunch with, or whether you're standing on a stage talking to 20,000 people, it's really the same, which is sharing how this is relatable or how this is valuable for somebody else. You know, it's not always interesting to hear. We enjoy hearing people's life stories and things like that, but it's not, we don't just enjoy just for listening to this person's life story. We listen to it because we think, ah, oh, that happened to me, or I wonder what I could learn here. So I think 
using your story, whatever that may be, in the service of others, in the service of others, bringing others value is key when it comes to creating a meaningful relationship or a meaningful dialogue between one or 20,000 people, or even for example, in our podcast. How to deal with pressure for me is, is actually quite, I wouldn't necessarily say easy, but I have a different lens on pressure and public speaking. People get super nervous when they are public speaking because they, they have the view on them. They think that everyone's looking at them. This is not true. Everybody's looking at themselves. When you're on stage and they're hearing you speak, they're actually not thinking about you. And this is not anything malice. This is not anything disrespectful. It's just simply who we are as human beings. When you're on stage and you're speaking, people are not looking at you. They're looking at themselves. And so one thing that I, what that I do or that the mindset that I have when I'm on stage, whether it's now remotely or whether it's physically on stage, is that I act as holding space for others to reflect on their own lives. And when you move from, I'm here to tell you something, or I'm here to be, per- or I'm here to tell you what to do, or I'm an expert or whatever. When you move from that mindset to, I'm here to hold space for you to take a minute, whether it's t- a 10 minute speech, whether it's a 30 minute speech, and the time that we have together, I'm going to hold space for you to reflect on yourself so that you can have these 10 minutes for you really does change because people then feel, oh, you, oh, she's not here to tell me something. She's here to support me. And you don't have to necessarily say that in those words. You don't have to say, hi, everyone, I'm Freddie or I'm Brittany and I'm here to hold space for you to reflect on yourself. Like, people are like, what are you talking about? Like, that's not, that's not, you don't have to say it in those words. You just have to act it. Don't come on stage with, with the answers. Come on stage with how, you've, how you walk through some of those questions. And I think that's what's interesting to people. So you know, you and I are kind of two bookends. You know, you're kind of like Asian in Sweden and I'm like Swedish looking in Japan, right? So we kind of have these two bookends with like the, essentially the same experience. Maybe not everyone will be able to relate to that, but yeah. I'm sure that there's people listening saying, you know what, that's how I felt in my family because I was, I don't know, adopted or that's how I felt when I went to the school because it, they were rich and I was poor or I don't know, whatever it could be. So the more that you share your story of how you managed kind of your questions instead of coming up with the answer. I think that's the way that you can really connect with people and also relieves the pressure because you're not there to answer questions. You're there to just share your own process. That's a really, really interesting way to see it, Brittany. It's a really interesting. I never thought of it that way. You know, I've given many speeches and I get equally nervous if it's five people, 10 or hundreds, you know? Oh, for sure. Uh, and I have my routine and like have this positive thinking and I have, the, I'm, I'm building up these mental pictures of how it's going to go. And, you know, most of the time it goes well, you know, but I never thought about that way that people are looking at themselves. I mean, it does. I now want to think about it, that it does actually like remove a lot of pressure from my shoulders. Yeah. Especially with your absolute internship, people imagine they're not look. they're not listening to absolute internship as a company, they're listening to, could that be me? Yeah, it is. Could that be me? And this is where it comes back to design thinking that we begin with the user in mind. We begin with somebody, we begin with a person, right? 
And this is true in so many things. It doesn't, you don't have to, you know, run a design thinking workshop. Even just think about the email address. Think about an email address. Who are you writing to? Who's behind that email address? What kind of dreams do they have? Right. And how does that then inform our communication? So, you know, if you are, you know, how do you write rejection letters or acceptance letters? You know, maybe, you know, so I think all these things do certainly do certainly change when we recognize that it's not, especially when we're, when you're leading a business or you're leading a dialogue or community, it's really not about you. It's really about them. I love that. It's not about you. It's about them. Yeah. You know, I mean, I rephrase it. Like I always like, I bombard our team all the time. I'm like, add value, add value. How are we adding value? How are we helping the other people? You know, how are we helping them? How are we helping that mother or that daughter or that student, you know? But yeah, I like that. It's not about you. It's about them. Love it. Okay. I know that you're an avid reader, Brittany. So I want to ask you, what are the books that had the biggest impact in your life? That's huge. I think there's a few, I, to, a couple of authors come to mind that did really kind of change the way that I was thinking. One author is a guy called uh, Dan Pink, who, write, who, who essentially rewrote what it means to, on many things essentially, one was in terms, he wrote a book called That Selling is Human. And I've always felt like that. When I've, when I've sold things, whether it's I'm telling someone about my hairdresser, the amount of times that I've sold like my hairdresser or like a clothes brand or something to someone, because I'm like, I love these guys. They're the best. Because, and I'm selling not in like a, like a used car kind of salesman way. It's I'm selling because I love the product. Like, you know, it's the same way that when you're like, when you're selling absolute internship, you love it. You know how it can change people's lives. So selling it is easy. So I would say anything by Dan Pink, anything by Seth Godin, because Seth Godin writes things. He writes about how doing unique work is hard and doing unique work doesn't necessarily turn, doesn't give you the like return, like short return. Sometimes it's like very long, long-term thinking stuff. So I would say those two authors for me really have contributed to shaping how I think on kind of like my Western brain and then like my Eastern brain, anything from Mikitani-san. So Mikitani is the founder of uh, Rakuten. Anything he wrote, I adore. And anything, any like really old, like Japanese samurai kind of like philosophy stuff, I love as well. Because I do think that there's a, there's a lot of kind of like samurai-ness in me in the sense of, you know, falling on the sword for your word, going above and beyond, delivering, doing what you say you're going to do, putting your, you know, customers first, all that kind of stuff is stuff, absolutely stuff that I love. Have you read the book uh, Musashi? Musashi, no, not yet. No? I mean, it's, uh, it it's amazing. List. It's by... Um... Let me look him up. It's by L.G. Yoshikawa. It's an amazing book. It's very long. I think it's almost a thousand pages, but it's about the greatest swordsman ever. I highly recommend it. Yeah. And anything like that, even there's, there's another book by uh, Matsushita-san, who Matsushita is, the, is today's Panasonic. And you recognize that if you go back to the Japanese companies, not of like the 1980s, but of the 1890s, 
that kind of mentality, that kind of thinking is, I think, the mentality that if we revitalize again in Japan today, that's going to be the real driving force of innovation. Not the recent companies, the ancient companies, because they're actually the ones that have the same the mindset that's going to serve you, even if it's in this digital economy. Even if we're even if it's in this digital economy, they have the same mindset, belief, principles, foundation that we need to rebuild. Yes. I remember when I went to business school were so many case studies about Matsuchita. So many case studies, you know. He's a great guy. Yes. And by the way, yes, the founder of Rakuten. I know he's written one book in English. That's the that's mm-hmm. the only one I, I read. And I love it. And I love how he makes all his team members and employees clean their desks once per week. Yeah. It's really cool. So very inspiring and very humbling. All right, then, Brittany, let me see. I don't have a lot of more questions for you. I know that the audience, they, they love routines and tactics. How does mm-hmm. your first two hours in the morning look like? And also, do you have a special r- ritual before going to bed? This is a great, he's a great guy. Actually changed a little bit now because of Corona, that due to the coronavirus, we're not currently in Japan, which means that my Monday morning is Sunday night at the moment. So that's actually changed quite considerably. I spend most, 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 most of my day creating content. So I don't have uh, everything. I, I try to streamline as much as possible. We try to use AI in terms of being able to translate the episodes from, from audio to text, things like that. Anything that I can automate, I try to automate because at the end of the day, the work that we're here to do is in the content creation that we need to create, create something. I've learned over time that when you're you know, on a call with someone and you say that you're, that you're going to do something, I try to do it while I'm still on the call. When they say, okay, well, let's, you know, I'll send you an email on, you know, so we can connect. I try to do that while I'm still in the call because I know if I don't do it while I'm in the call in that 30 seconds, that it could take me a day. So I try to avoid those kinds of things that while you're having people, while you're still on the call with someone to try to do what you say you're going to do with them. So things like that. But in turn, when you, when you work over time zones and, and things like that, you don't necessarily have like a, you know, your morning or, you know, your evening routine. Sometimes my, what I need to do in terms of the morning actually ends up happening in the evenings right now because I'm on central time. Japan obviously is then like 17 hours ahead of us. So things like that, you just, I think when it comes to routines, you really have to look at not only what's your ideal, what works for you, but also look at like kind of what's going on in the planet, like right now. So for example, for us, in terms of like COVID, that's changed things. Sometimes I have to run workshops at three o'clock in the morning. That's not ideal. However, my market is Japan. So it's just something you just got to keep going. You got to keep going with you know, I told the university, this is what I wanted to do for work. And the universe said, yeah, sure. No problem. I never said that I needed to be in Japan to do that work. So, you know, I get to live my, my dream life just means that I have to sometimes wake up at 3am, but that's just how things are. Just when it comes to routines, I think sometimes people get a little bit too strict on themselves and how they should be doing things and when they should be doing things. I think when it comes to now, especially with, with COVID really also hitting people emotionally, also motivation-wise, just really find something that works for you. If maybe pre-COVID times, you did your burst of work in the morning, but you actually recognize that now you're actually feeling really down and you need to go work out first thing in the morning, change your routine. 
Absolutely do it. You know, I know that there's all these books that say if you wake up at four o'clock in the morning, whatever, you're most successful. But this is not about those books. This is about you. So finding something that works for you, finding, finding a structure that helps you succeed is more important than any study that suggests uh, otherwise. Brittany, you said that you're living your dream life. What is your dream life? Yeah, so it's, I can summarize it in a, in a moment, which is when people, when our participants in Japan say, I feel better now, I feel more equipped, I feel more confident in my work. And the reason why I'm so excited to give people the tools for work is because it's a little bit about, it, it helps them actually dive a little bit deeper emotionally. So the same way that if you want to get kind of more confident, you can work out. If you give yourself tools in the workplace that gives you more confidence and you're less stressed about your job, then maybe you have more emotional headspace to go home and ask your spouse, hey, how are you doing? Or maybe when your kids are coming to you at dinner and instead of saying, you know, give me a minute and I'm tired, maybe you're like, yeah, I do want to play Legos with you. Show me your homework or whatever. So when you start seeing that giving people the tools for success, giving people the tools to innovate and taking away this guesswork, taking away this, is this the right thing? Maybe yes, maybe no. Giving people recipes in order for them to achieve their professional goals, whether they're creating new businesses, whether they're testing new apps or products or services, whatever that may be, giving people really that, that tangible guidance takes away so much other stress in their life. And take, by replacing that stress with confidence, it enables them to then go and to show up more, not only show up for their families, but it enables them to show up professionally. And when people, when you start recognizing that what you do, he's a great guy, or how you do anything is how you do everything. You start recognizing if I can give this person more confidence, if I can give this, if this person can leave this workshop feeling better about themselves, then maybe they just might feel a little bit more excited about their life. And that's really how you end up making significant change because I, that's really what I want to do. I really want to contribute to a Japan that is uniquely Japanese, but also I really want to make sure that people benefit from the best global practices that we have available. Thank you, Brittany. We are above our 30s, Brittany. This is one of my last questions. Why would you tell your 20-year-old self? Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. There's, okay. I yeah, love that. Keep going. There's so much of... When you're in the business of people like you and I are, it's not, it's not a build and sell in a 12-month game. It's not it. Our business of people is the same way that if you, if you have a, you know, a child takes you know, 18 years to become an adult. If you're in the business of people, it's, that's sometimes very much the case as well. And to not underestimate just if, if things take long, to not be put off, that things will take long, expect that things do take long. But I said, Freddie, I just could never imagine doing anything else. Even to this day, I could not imagine doing anything else than what I'm doing right now, which is giving people those tools for innovation so that they can get rid of the stress in their professional life so they can show up more in their personal lives. That's it. That's really it. And I can't imagine doing anything else. So, and all this just takes time. And as long as that you are doing what you love, the fact that it might take years is fine. It's fine. It's going to, it's going to be different. And especially you, know, you and I have lived nonlinear lives, right? We didn't, 
you know, sometimes if you think, and I'm sure probably the Fika with Rice podcast listeners might, might relate, but sometimes you're, the people that you went to school with, their biggest question is, do we buy a house in this street or that street? We have to sit down and talk with our partners and say, which country do you want to live in? Oh, well, what about here? Yeah, but my parents are there. Oh, but your parents are there. Like, these are huge questions. These yeah. are really huge questions. So because of that, your life is not going to have the same timeline as someone who's had maybe who has more of like a level playing field. Our lives look like nothing's happening and then we'll level up by like 15 levels overnight, right? And then it feels like nothing's happening for five years and then you'll level up again 15. There's no like, you know, gradual, gradual growth. It's like nothing and then kind of everything changes overnight. So just understand that to not compare yourself to those around you because it's really just going to, their lives are going to be different because simply of just what, what your experience and how your life is. And there's been so much, so many beautiful things that have also come with the life that we live as well. What a great way to end this, this conversation, Brittany. Where can people find you online to learn more about you? And where can they go to say hello to you on social media? So online, if you want to know more about doing business in Japan or what it's, or even talk, and I've actually, I also talk about presenting and facilitating and leading in your non-native language as well. Because even though my native language is English, I spend most of my time working in, or I used to, I used to when I used to live in Germany, I used to work in German or Japanese. And I always thought that was funny. And I also talk a lot on how to be your best self in your non-native language as well. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, that's all on LinkedIn. If you're interested in the Business Karaoke Podcast, we, that's also on LinkedIn. It's at the Business Karaoke Podcast. Oh, my LinkedIn name, or you can find me as Brittany Arthur. Or you can um, you go and find the Business Karaoke Podcast also on LinkedIn or on social. You can find me at underscore Brittany Arthur or the Business Karaoke Podcast as well. And that's kind of a little bit more where you see my day-to-day behind the scenes kind of life as well. Very nice. Very cool. Thank you very much for, for this conversation, Brittany. It's been so much fun to talk to you today. And yeah, thank you very much. Freddie, it was an absolute pleasure. I just wanted to, to take a minute to highlight you and to honor you, the way that you show up in the world, the the way that how you change lives every day with absolute internship and giving people the opportunity to to live a life that they never dreamed possible is just such a wonderful thing. And they're now creating this podcast. And I know that quality is just so important to you and anything that you do is really just always above and beyond any expectation of anyone. So I just wanted to say just say thank you again for the invitation and the work that, you know, I really do applaud the work that you do. Very, very beautifully said, uh, Brittany. I'm very humble. Thank you very much. I'm very humble. So thank you very much, Brittany. Thanks, Freddie. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Fika with Rice. I hope you enjoyed the show. Who do you want to have on our show? Let us know by sending me an email at frederick at absoluteinternship.com. And before you go, if you like this conversation, don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube or Spotify to get to listen to more inspirational stories and life hacks. We really appreciate it. See you next time and much gratitude for listening.